Claude Elwood Shannon. To those in the know, like the geeks from the Tech Stuff podcast, he's a god. We're talking about Claude Shannon. Claude Shannon, folks. Yes. The father of information theory. Right. Also known as the father of the electronic communication age. He's been compared to, uh, you know, some some pretty impressive some, big Some wigs. decently big people, uh, like uh, Einstein. Yeah, Einstein being one of them. Simply put, if you've ever touched a computing device of any sort, you have him to thank. In 1937, as a 21-year-old Bell Labs intern, Shannon published what was later dubbed the most important and also the most famous master's thesis of the century. Entitled A Symbolic Analysis of Relay and Switching Circuits, it laid the groundwork for modern computing by using Boolean algebra to establish the theoretical foundation of digital circuits. He surmised that simple binary switches could be used to solve problems of logic. In an interview decades later, Shannon was characteristically humble, saying, it just happened that no one else was familiar with both those fields, by which he means math and engineering, at the same time. And by way of further explanation, he noted, I've always loved that word, Boolean. 11 years later, Shannon, now employed by Bell Labs, published the paper that would be his masterwork, A Mathematical Theory of Communication. In it, he introduced the concept of the binary digit, or bit. Here's James Glick, author of the award-winning book, The Information, speaking on NPR's All Things Considered. He was the first person to use the word bit as a scientific unit of measuring this funny abstract thing that until this point in time, scientists had not thought of as a measurable scientific quantity. The irreducible quantum of information, yes or no, either or, on or off, if it's an electrical circuit. And of course, we all know that that's what our computers are filled with, all, all that information in the forms of ones and zeros. The paper laid out how a general communication system functions from the production of a message to its encoding, transmission, and reception. He described how digital coding would enable us to compress and send messages with 100% accuracy. This one has been called the Magna Carta of the Information Age. Last year, on the occasion of what would have been his 100th birthday, Claude Shannon received that most coveted of tributes, a Google Doodle portrait. And in it, this legendary mathematician, the father of information theory, and the man who made digital communication a reality, he's juggling. From Nokia Bell Labs, this is Future Human, a series about the human potential of technology. For this episode, we'll explore how a Shannon-esque approach is informing research into that most vital of human organs. This is episode four, The Humane Brain. Juggling was just one of Shannon's many hobbies. A tinkerer from an early age, he nurtured his curiosity through a variety of vocations, including unicycling, chess, building gadgets, playing jazz clarinet, picking stocks, and even composing poems. His approach to his work was similarly polymathic. Jimmy Sony who along with Rob Goodman wrote the recently released Shannon biography, 
A Mind at Play, explained it recently on an episode of the A16Z podcast. To my mind, one of the most interesting things about him is he just spends his entire life pursuing the problems that interest him most. And then the moment that he's taken them, as far as he'd like to take them, he goes on and chases a different problem. So it's interesting, right? Because he could have continued to trade on information theory for decades. He just, he sort of walks off the stage, but pursues artificial intelligence, then pursues robotics, goes and builds a chess playing machine, uh, builds an artificially intelligent mouse that can navigate a maze. I, I, what I find inspiring about him is this is someone who had lucrative, prestigious options and almost always went for the problem that interested him most. In 2016, Bell Labs feted one of their most famous alums with a two-day conference entitled The Future of the Information Age, Claude Shannon Centennial Conference. The celebration was highlighted by a series of presentations by global visionaries, including Eric Schmidt, executive chairman of Google's parent company, Alphabet, Erwin Jacobs, co-founder of Qualcomm, Bob Metcalf, co-inventor of Ethernet and formulator of Metcalf's Law, Amber Case, a cyborg anthropologist, and Henry Markram of the Human Brain Project. Here's Bell Labs president, Marcus Weldon. So we decided to host a conference, and what I wanted there was a set of talks that were Shannon-esque in terms of their ability to capture a thought process, a intellectual space, and reduce it to something that everyone could understand. So it's why we picked Henry Markram for the brain, because he was doing sort of the challenging thinking. Shannon was a great challenger of conventional wisdom and how to parameterize and think about information theory and capacity and networks and things like that. So Markram was thinking about the brain in a new way, not just as a bio thing, but actually about uh, almost a computational engine that could be decomposed into 20 fundamental elements you could combine. Markram shared his progress with his mission of building a digital copy of the brain. His multinational human brain project has received over a billion euros in funding, utilizing teams of scientists from many countries and some of the most powerful supercomputers on Earth. When we won the grant for the Human Brain Project, uh, Shimon Peres, the president at that time of Israel, um, the late Shimon Peres, he actually said that the reason why this is important, and I think he said it the best way, we haven't been able to say it better than he said it, is that we need to understand the brain because we are strangers to ourselves. Instead of attempting to map the nearly 100 billion neurons in a human brain, an impossible task, he and his team spent over 25 years collecting data on a sliver of the neocortex of a rodent's brain. The neocortex, the most highly evolved part of the brain, also happens to be the most exquisitely ordered. By uncovering the order in the system, the rules by which neurons are organized, and how they interact and shift states, they've been able to build a draft digital map of this piece of the rodent's neocortex. It's the most comprehensive such map that exists. And, as he acknowledged at the conference, without the underpinning of information theory, none of this would have been imaginable. Speaking to journalist Michael McKay, Markram positions his research as addressing a fundamental socioeconomic issue. Two billion people in the world, a third of the planet, at some point in time is affected by some form of brain disease or brain uh, pathology. Two billion. Two billion. 
at some point in their life, it's costing the world one over a trillion dollars a year in social and economic burden. When you have something like um, depression or even migraine, migraine impacts the the family. The the person can't go to work. The the whole family is affected. Depression, schizophrenia impacts the whole family. Autism impacts the whole family. Um, so I think that we have a tremendous obligation as scientists to try to un help uh, relieve the suffering from brain disorders. But at its core, there's a humanist impulse. In many cases, we run our life and we do not realize that the brain shapes our personalities, they shape our capabilities, they shape our moods, they shape our um, clarity, our judgments, our opinions. I think that it is from a, um, a point of view of humanity or the, the adventure of being human, um, probably the most important thing we can possibly do is to understand our brain and demystify it. It is a complex organ, but to demystify it means to empower ourselves so that we can actually get into the driving seat of the brain and be able to understand how we can improve our capabilities. Uh, another aspect of it is that when you, the more you understand the brain or the more you study the brain, the more you realize how subjective the world that we perceive is. And that brings some moderation to um, the way that we operate in the world. It's not absolutes. There's no absolute clear right and wrong. It's a very subjective world. And I think that it, in general, enhances our empathy. In the wake of the successful conference, Marcus and his team decided to codify these Shannon Luminary talks. We've got to pick up this thing again that was these great brains uh, in, in multiple fields, and they didn't any longer have to acknowledge Claude, per se, but they had to have a brain like Claude's, they had to have a perspective like Claude's, but that could be in multiple disciplines, because he was a polymath who was a juggler, uh, a puzzle solver, he, he did his PhD in genetics and the statistics or the information theory of genetics, you know, and, and then did information theoretic stuff. And so he did, he did many things, and so we thought, we'll take the polymath part of Claude and continue to use that as the name of the series. But now we'd really go wider afield uh, and, and really find luminary thinkers and invite them to Bell Labs. So they extended an invitation to another neuroscientist, author and Stanford professor David Eagleman. He's easily one of the busiest guys in the brain racket. About eight months ago, I moved up to Stanford, and so what I'm doing now is I'm teaching at Stanford. I have a new cognitive neuroscience textbook that Stanford's using, and I'm teaching some other courses there. And I'm, I'm running two companies now that I've spun out of my lab. So one is Neosensory, which is the vest, and the other is called BrainCheck, and that just uses tablets to quickly um, have people play games, and in five minutes we can tell 14 different measures about what's happening in their brain. And so we can test for things like dementia and also for concussion. So I'm, I'm doing those two companies, then I'm, then I'm doing this documentary for the next book, and the, the next book comes out in October, and in the meantime, I'm working on my next two books. Um, I'm writing those. So it's a busy year, and I have a family. So um, 
before they kill me, I'm going to try to get some of these projects off the plate. In his presentation, Eagleman echoes Markram's passion for decoding how the brain functions, especially its most unknowable part. I'm going to talk about the unconscious brain and about all the stuff that's happening that we don't even know is happening under the hood. So your conscious mind, the part of you that wakes up in the morning and thinks, okay, here's what I'm going to do today and so on, that's actually the smallest bit of what's happening in your brain. And almost all of its massive operations um, we're not even acquainted with or uh, have any access to. So I'll talk about that. And I'll also talk about some of the work that I've been doing around creating new senses for humans and how we can build a completely different sort of sensory experience than the one we're used to. And like Shannon before him, who built robotic, artificially intelligent mice and a chess playing contraption decades before IBM's Deep Blue, he builds products to bring his research to life. Core to a study of sensory substitution is the VEST, which is an acronym for Versatile Extrasensory Transducer. It's also an actual vest, one designed to enable the sensory impaired to perceive missing information through vibrations on their torso. Our first goal is to address deafness. So what we found some years ago is that we can take somebody who's completely deaf, has severe or profound hearing loss, and put this vest on them, and the vest has... 32 vibratory motors, and we can translate on the fly, using algorithms, sound from the world into patterns of vibration on the torso. So as my voice is going on and there's maybe a slamming door and a honking horn, you're feeling different uh, patterns of vibration on the torso, and deaf people can come to understand the world this way. And it sounds very weird that that would ever work, but you know, if you think about something like blindness and braille... Uh, A blind person is running his or her fingers over these bumps on a page and they laugh and they cry and so on. Um, It's because it doesn't matter how you get the information to the brain, as long as you get it there. The brain is good at interpreting whatever data comes in, it figures out what to do with it and it acts upon it. Along with deafness, we're also addressing blindness and we've just completed some very cool studies where we put the vest on a blind person and we're giving them all sorts of information about who's in the room and where they're walking and you can feel people all around you and where, whether they're close or far from you. And uh, this has turned out to be very successful. There's zero learning curve on this for, for a blind person. And um, we're dealing with prosthetic legs where we're essentially giving sensation from the leg back to the body. And we're um, dealing with sort of successively weirder and stranger things also like you know getting the perception of uh, uh, of a drone or the stock market or things like that so we're trying all these things and um, seeing what this means for what philosophers call qualia which is the you know the internal experience of something uh, you know the redness of red the pain of pain that kind of thing um, so the question is if we feed in completely new data what will that mean in terms of what you're able to perceive the vest relies on the plasticity of the brain, its ability to adjust its circuitry, or, in the words of Markram, change its state, to accommodate new stimuli. This plasticity is most evident in children, witness their facility for learning new languages. But, fortunately, our brains remain teachable throughout our lives. After his presentation, 
Eagleman shares with Marcus the breadth of his vision for the VEST. And we can actually pass in any kind of data stream to the VEST that way. So one of the things that I'm very interested in, and I know that you share an interest in this, is this issue of can we measure physiologic signals from one person, pass them to another person? And I think there are scenarios where you'd want to do that and scenarios where you don't, but let's imagine you want to do that. We've, we talked about a marital examples, uh, maybe one where you would want to. Exactly. You'd probably want to know what your wife is up to. Um, you wouldn't necessarily want to know what your coworkers are up to. Exactly. And, Let's say with your spouse, you want to feel her physiologic signals. So you have sensors on her, and you can then feel when she's nervous, when she's happy, exactly. things like that. And uh, you know, you can call at the right times and say the right sorts of things. Exactly. And we all need all the help we can get, so it's good. Another experiment he's conducting explores why people lack empathy for those who are not part of, as Taylor Swift puts it, their squad, or, in scientific terms, in-group. We're very hardwired to form in-groups and out-groups. I think forming an in-group has something to do with being able to link arms with several colleagues and be sort of something bigger. So, uh, a superhuman in some ways uh, yeah. by collective behavior. Exactly. Yeah. And if I know that this guy is on my team and he will protect me to his death, and so like it's really good. It's it's a superorganism. Yeah. So as a species, we're very much you know to some degree we're individuals, but to some degree we're extraordinarily into linking arms. We have people in the scanner. They get to see a hand get stabbed with a syringe needle that activates this pain network in their brain. And then we put a one-word label on each hand, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Scientologist, Hindu, atheist, and they see hands get stabbed, and they were measuring to what degree does your brain have that empathic response when it's your in-group, whatever your in-group is, versus when you're out-groups. And, and what we find is that people don't care as much about their out-groups. This is an extremely low-level instant response in the brain. So this isn't something that people think about and whatever, it's just that you care about your group and you don't really care about other groups as much. Um, and there's some degree of variability between people. Some people are closer to caring about all of their brethren equally, whereas other people really don't give any care about their... Uh, <laughs> I care, yes, exactly. Yeah. About their uh, outgroups. And so, um, yeah, so we're looking at various forms of this and what causes this. And, um, and you, I think you even showed that just by telling someone they're in group A or group B, they could actually immediately determine that they like group A or group B better, even though it has no meaning what group A or group B is. Exactly. Yeah. So we, we make two groups, the Augustinians and the Justinians, <laughs> and we assign them and we give them a little bracelet reminding them that they're an Augustinian now and so on, and we say these are two warring tribes. Yeah, that's all it takes for them to start caring more about that hand getting stabbed than the other team's hand getting stabbed. So uh, really interesting that it, it probably has a basis in superhuman behavior, meaning the collective action pays yeah. off and... And then and you encode for that in some way. I think it makes tremendous sense. Yeah. In his quest to acquaint ourselves with ourselves, Henry Markram is utilizing an information theoretical approach to mapping the brain. David Eagleman is taking advantage of the brain's adaptability to help humans regain lost senses, learn new ones, and perhaps even build bridges between loved ones or strangers. And if you ask Marcus, this can happen soon enough. But these transference things where they are sort of empathy transfer, brain transfer, understanding transfer, I think these are very interesting ideas. And I think we're going to get to the point where it's more possible and in a positive way that you're going to be able to request what does it feel like to be that person? And they are going to be willing to share what it feels like to be them. We have to do that as humans. I always say language is the best we've done and physical exchange here. Uh, and language is the best we've done. We've got to be able to do multi-sensory, multimedia, multi 
something uh, transfer. And if we can, that's the route to, as the catalyst for this human change. We have to learn what it feels like to be desperate if I'm living in the Rust Belt. I have to feel desperation again. And I have to feel sufficiently saddened by that desperation that I don't feel superior. I actually feel inadequate because I've created a world where that was possible, right. where a human is having to live that way. And you see their children, and you realize their children are just like your children, but they are completely different in terms of the set of possibilities. And if you put your child in that child's position, you would say, okay, this has to stop. But we stop at the headline. We don't go deeply and we don't understand what's really going on. I think that has to stop. And equally, people in the Rust have to understand that liberal elitism isn't is this is the headline it's not the reality that understanding will come by seeing we all live and we all struggle and uh, the magnitudes are slightly different but it's still struggling and and that's the human condition to bridge divides by actually being able to send the complete sensibility that was experienced in a moment to another individual and say this is what that did to me and and then you could really appreciate trans Atlantically, trans-politically, transgender, trans-whatever, uh, how others were being impacted by the things that you perhaps didn't perceive. I even called it virtual teleportation at one point, because if you think about what Star Trek was trying to do with teleportation, move you from place A to place B so you could experience that other thing, culture, whatever way of thinking, way of being, if I could do that digitally by encapsulating and sending over a network and then recreating it at the other end. It's probably the perfect existence you could imagine in terms of exploring sensibility and, and uh, different cultures and different ways of thinking. The brain's ability to evolve bodes well for this ambitious view of a more empathic future. No doubt Claude Shannon, the restless polymath with the most plastic of brains, would approve. For more information about the topics discussed today, please check our show notes. If you like this episode of Future Human, please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to leave a review at iTunes. Future Human is a production of Nokia Bell Labs. This episode was written and produced by me, Sandy Smolens, for Audiation.fm. It was recorded and mixed at The Loft in Bronxville, New York by Matt Noble who also composed the theme music with me. Additional editorial assistance from Christine Corey, who helped me wrap my brain around the brain. Audiation.